Good morning, Valley family. Great to see everyone uh, here this morning. This is a, a real exciting, this is one of our big weekends, one of my favorite weekends every single year. Uh, I, I think this is uh, uh, probably, we were trying to think, in terms of Operation Christmas Child, uh, I believe we've been doing this for about 18 years now uh, as a church, almost just as soon as uh, Samaritan's Purse started uh, Operation Christmas Child. And, and also, it's a big weekend uh, because uh, my pastor, Dr. Ron Cottle is with us. He comes the, the weekend of my birthday. It's not today. It's actually tomorrow. Uh, but um, it, it's just such a great, great blessing. I think it's been about 15 years in a row now, uh, actually, that he's been here on this weekend uh, in November. So it just makes the weekend even uh, more special uh, to me, uh, especially not to be redundant again. But uh, in terms of introducing Dr. Cottle, I, I wanted to just look at a, one verse of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. And the Apostle Paul says to the church of Corinth, For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. And that really uh, is what happened in my heart uh, with Dr. Cottle uh, about 16, 17 years ago. Uh, the first time that I met him, and I was going through a difficult time. My, uh, some of you know my mother had passed away, and uh, it, it was just a real difficult, challenging time for me. And that's when uh, I known Dr. Cottle by way of taking classes, a number of his classes uh, by video through the years. But that was the first time that I met him personally. And God just knit our hearts together, uh, and he has been, without any question, uh, for, for a decade and a half or more, uh, my spiritual father, just as Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. I've had a lot of teachers, I've taken a lot of classes, and, and have some degrees and all that, uh, but a spiritual father is different because not only does he teach you, but he cares for you, and, and he's there for you when, when you need uh, help, when you're struggling, and, and he's also there to correct you uh, and to bring real truth. And there have been times when I was just ready to throw in a towel and I wouldn't be here at Valley Christian Church today if it weren't for Dr. Ron Cottle, who just believed in me and encouraged me and, and challenged me in the Lord and has been a real spiritual father uh, to me and, and to my wife Susie, of course, and, and our girls. He loves them like they're his own grandchildren. They call him, of course, Grandpa Cottle. And, uh, and we're just so honored to have him here today. And, and so uh, I'm going to encourage you, Valley family, go ahead and pull out your Valley Christian Church app. His outline is right there. You want to make sure you click on the top one, uh, not the message from Thursday night that I gave uh, called Healing Election Infection. Uh, that's going to be played in Poughkeepsie, and it will be posted later on our website. Uh, but the outline's there for that. But the outline for Dr. Cottle is U.S. Church at the Crossroads. So you want to click on that, and you can follow right along on your Valley Christian Church app. And uh, we're, we're just so honored to have him here today. So this is going to be recorded and put on our website and our app as well. Uh, so we're going to have our little bumper right now, and then Dr. Cottle's going to come. And I hope you just raise the roof, uh, just welcoming him uh, right as he starts the message. Uh, and we're just so honored to have you with us here today, Dr. Cottle. He'll be catching the plane right after service uh, and, and heading back to Georgia. Um, but thank you so much. We love you more than you'll ever know. And I don't know where I'd be today if it weren't for you. And, and I'm just so thankful for God bringing you into my life at a very critical time when I needed it the most. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into our message right now. Oh, beautiful, for spacious skies, for Good morning, everybody. 
It's a delight to be here. God bless you. Thank you. It's a joy to be here always to come and uh, celebrate the birthday of my spiritual son and daughter. It's just a, a joy always to see these beautiful women uh, that are their daughters come home. And uh, we just had a great dinner last night and a wonderful evening. Um, I want to talk to you about something quite important and uh, quite timely. Uh, U.S. Church at the Crossroads. Uh, if you, well, it was October 17th on a Saturday night. I'll never forget it. We had a neighborhood party because um, a new surgeon had moved in to our neighborhood. Uh, he had moved in next door to me. And he's a, uh, a real hotshot surgeon, cardiologist who does it with robots. So we built a, a whole new wing on the um, regional hospital in our town to get ready for this, this fellow. His name is Charlie Anderson, and he and his wife Lindsay are just fabulous folks in their upper mid-40s, and um, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. So we threw a big uh, neighborhood party for them to welcome them to the neighborhood. And he brought his, his father and his mother came from Kansas, Wichita, which is the headquarter city of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is where I did a lot of my theological work. I have a, an MDiv from them, and they got me a, a scholarship, and, uh, and I went on from there. And uh, uh, so I have real roots in that, in that church. So uh, his name is Anderson, last name. So first thing Charlie did was he went and got me and brought me over after I ferreted through all the drinks, you know, and got my ginger ale. And uh, I sat down with uh, Charlie, Charlie's dad, Dennis, and his mom. And what I thought would be just a hello and, a, you know, a goodbye and all of that stuff turned into two hours of really locked-in conversation. Because this man was a, a, a great man. He, um, he was the number two man in the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which is the fifth largest denomination in America with 4.6 million members. And um, nobody knew that he was also at a crossroads in his life, but I found it out that night. His son daughter didn't even know it. We locked in. I asked him as we sat down, your name is Anderson, huh? E-L-C-A, right? Yeah. I said, do you know Hugh George? Well, he, his head snapped, and he, he looked back. Hugh George Anderson is the head of that denomination, and he's a good, close, personal friend of mine. And he said, he's my boss and my best friend, and we've known each other for all of our lives. How do you know him? And so we were, we were together then. We were locked in, so... He began to talk to me about what he was doing. He was the ecumenical leader of that great church, and his job was to unite the Lutherans with the Episcopalians and the Roman Catholics and all the liturgical groups around the world. Well, after about an hour and a half of talking about all these kinds of things, tears in his eyes, he said to me, Ron, my son doesn't know this, but I'm going home as soon as this is over, and I'm going to resign. I'm going to retire. I'm going to quit. I'm going to throw in the towel. He said, I feel like I've wasted my career, my life. He said, and this resonated with me. He said, the church isn't working. It just isn't working. I feel like I've wasted my life for nothing. About the same time, I found out a day or two later that David Jeremiah, the, the Baptist television uh, man from San Diego, whose name ought to be a, a household word because he's a, he's a great, great man, uh, he posted this on his website. He said, according to a recent LifeWay research study, 
Now, LifeWay is the Southern Baptist Convention's research and resource arm. It's the greatest in America, probably the greatest in the world. And he, he said, according to, to their statistics, in the next seven years, 55,000 churches in the United States will shut their doors. And the number of those who attend a church on the weekend will drop from 17% down to 14% of the population. Now, that's incredible. He went on, though, and said only 20% of the churches in the United States are growing. And only 1% are growing by reaching lost people. So 95% of church growth we celebrate in the United States merely shuffles existing Christians around. Now, let me, let me put this in a little bit of perspective before I start and read a text and give you a three-point sermon. Lifeway is the, is the arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, largest denomination in America by far. It has 46,700 churches. We're going to lose 55,000 churches in the next seven years. And by the way, we're two years into that seven-year period, and it is on schedule. It is on schedule. What this means is that our United States of America is at a spiritual crossroads like never before, like never before. And I call it the biblical or apostolic or Christian opportunity of a lifetime. This is the greatest time to be alive. We've got opportunities right now in the midst of our dilemmas that we've never had before. So here's my text, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Have you got it in front of you? Maybe they'll put it right here. Now the Spirit speaks expressly, there it is, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, th that's really the King James. The NIV says it like this. It says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, these latter times are going uh, to produce a breeding ground, the Bible says, for false prophets and teachers. Isn't that what you get from this? That's what I get from it. And these, in turn, are going to pave the way for heightened demonic activity and distorted doctrine. Now, just hold on with me for a second. That's the situation that is predicted. Now, I, I want to do two things here. First of all, I want to give you just a little vignette of the history of this church that he's talking to. This is Timothy. Timothy was the spiritual son of Paul. Paul founded the church in Ephesus, and Timothy was now the new pastor. And he was also the general superintendent of all the Christian work in all of Asia, in Asia Minor. So let me give you five little vignettes quickly, and then then. We'll, we'll attack this text. Five stages of the history of this church. I wish I didn't have to take time to do this, but I, I have to get this down for us. Paul preached in Ephesus in 53 A.D. Turn to Acts 18 in your Bible, if you will. 
Acts 18. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul just went there to Ephesus en route to some to Corinth, actually, from Athens. But he stopped there virtually overnight, maybe for a week or two, and he preached. People begged him to stay. He wouldn't stay because he was headed to Jerusalem. But he promised them he'd come back. And so in Acts 19, just a few verses later, the Bible said he returned. And he built the church at Ephesus in 54, 55, and 56 A.D. Now, um, he was there 30 months. He never stayed that long anywhere. And while he was there, this church grew. I can take my Bible and show you 21 churches that came out of his ministry for 30 months in the church at Ephesus. It was actually explosive. And the church at Ephesus then became the engine, the evangelistic engine of Christianity. Because in 70 A.D., just eight years later, you remember the Roman centurion Cyrus laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it. And the Christians all fled. And that church diminished. So now this church, Ephesus, had become the center of Christianity. And God knew precisely what he was doing by putting Paul there at that particular time. Could I have that water? Could I have that water? Um, now, now, watch then. Thank you, sir. Watch then uh, the development here. Uh, uh, he, built, he built that church then in those, that period of time. He left in 56 A.D. due to a big riot. And he went to Jerusalem where he was immediately arrested. And then he appealed to Caesar. And they took him to Rome. And he was from that point on a prisoner of the state. He was never a free man again. Now that was in 56. He died in 62 just seven years later six years later. He wrote this book in the year that he died, 1 Timothy. Now, I did my Ph.D. on uh, New Testament exegesis and the book of Acts and its relationship to all the epistles. And I discovered that this is the latest book that Paul wrote. And if you look at chapters 5 and 6 in the book, of First Timothy, you'll uh, discover that most of it is housekeeping and greetings. This is the last thought in the mind of Paul, the greatest Christian other than Jesus who ever lived, when he went to his death in 62 A.D. It's incredible. This is what this is what was grabbing Paul in his belly when he died. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, in Revelation chapter 2, if you want to look at the first seven verses, you'll find the next reference to the church at Ephesus. Here's what happened. Paul prophesies in this text a falling away. Some shall depart from the faith. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, the risen Lord, infallible risen Lord, he picks up on Paul's prophecy and he says, through John, you remember, I'm going to remove the candlestick from Ephesus. You know, that's marvelous. And that's what the church is. That's what you are. You're the candlestick, the light giver. And the church was a candlestick, the light giver of Ephesus. I'm going to take it away, he said. I'm going to move it. It's a, it's a continuation of Paul's prophecy. Now, there isn't any mention of the church at Ephesus in the Bible after that Revelation 2 passage and Jesus' prophecy. So you got to go to the church fathers, and I did that. And I went to Ignatius in 110 A.D., 
Father Ignatius, the bishop over at Antioch, disciple of John, who was at Ephesus, knew all about Ephesus. And he described the church at Ephesus. And it was functioning in 110 A.D. Then I go to the next church father, Tertullian, in 125 A.D., and he doesn't mention Ephesus. Chrysostom doesn't mention Ephesus. None of the other fathers mention Ephesus. Ephesus is gone. Ephesus, the candlestick, was snuffed out. It was over. And when I go back with my arithmetic, I realized that Ephesus lasted 70 years. About 70 years, the church lasted about 70 years. It was the engine of first century Christianity. It was the reason Christianity captured the world. But while the world exploded and they turned it upside down with the gospel, the engine quit and died. Now, I want us to carefully look at this text. Uh, these verses are a specific and careful word of prophecy. He says, the Spirit speaks expressly. Can you put, it, put the first one back up? Just speaks expressly, expressly. That's the Greek word ratos, R-H-E-T-O-S. It's a, it's a cousin of rhema. So it is a rhema that is Specific and precise. The Holy Spirit says, don't miss this. Whatever you do, listen to this. And, it, and remember, too, it was, it, was, it was the claw in the belly of the greatest Christian ever to live on the eve of his death. This is what he wanted the world to know. In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Boy. So I looked at the latter times. And most everybody reads that and they say, oh, that's the last days. That's the eschaton. No, it's not. It's not. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus returning. It doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with, with the end time. Uh, the word the latter times is, is husteros. It means extreme times. It means difficult times. It means trying times. And it's not a day like the last days. That's eschatos hemeros. Latter times is husteros kairos. Kairos is a season of time. It's a season. So it's a, a season of extremity. The Holy Spirit said to Paul, a season of extremity is going to come on the Ephesian church. A season, a time, a time period that's going to be trying and troubling for the church. So in this passage, the Holy Spirit really tells Paul to tell Timothy that times of trouble are coming. He's going to define what the trouble is and it's going to impact the church incredibly. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe that this is a word for the Christian church right now, today. It's not for the end time. It's for now, right now. It's happening in 2016. While much of the world is experiencing revival because of America, because of our missionaries, because of, of our spreading the gospel around the world. Most of the world today is in revival like never before. I, I can show you that 200,000 people every day turn to Jesus Christ on planet Earth. Today, 25,000 in Asia will come to Christ that's in China, Korea, Indonesia, Malaysia. We've got ministry all over there. 35,000 in Africa will turn to Christ. 
20,000 in Latin and South America will come to Christ. And 70% of all of those will be spirit-filled people, not just people who have a form of religion. It's incredible what's going on today. We're in a great, great period. So what happened in the United States? So what's going on in America? We've been the engine for all of this in the 20th century. It was the American church. But while the world in general is in a spirit of revival, season of revival, the U.S. church, like Ephesus, is in a season of falling away. The engine isn't working. We're going to lose 55,000 churches in seven-year period. 3% of the nation's population will drop church altogether. Some say the American church is mortally wounded. God's done with it. Others say God has given us a respite. God is giving us a time now that we can make a difference in ourselves and perhaps change things around. I don't know about that. But I want to ask three questions of this text and then try to answer them and then leave that, leave that with this house, leave that with you. Number one, question number one, what exactly is this prophecy? What is this prophecy? Here it is. Some shall depart from the faith. It doesn't say might, doesn't say could, but shall. Jer Jeremiah said in seven years we're going to lose 55,000 churches. Dennis said, Ron, the church isn't working. I don't know about you, but this, this grabbed hold of me. So I went, I went into this text. I've turned this text every which way that I could. And I looked at that word depart. I looked at the word speaks expressly. I looked at the word, all of them, husteros. And then I looked at the word depart. Here's the word depart. Now, here's the key to this thing. And this is how I can live with this. Some shall depart, depart. That word it looks, if you read it in the Greek, it looks like it's apostasy. Going to apostate, be apostate. Well, apostate is a strong word, isn't it? It, it? it means to rebel. It means to abandon or divorce God. It means to reject or repudiate God. It means to push God away and become a nation of rebels. Well, that's not happening in America. I don't. That's not going on. I don't see that. So I just kept on probing this word, and I said, now, now that, that can't be because that's not what's going on. This is not a word for us if that's the case. I kept pushing it, and I discovered something that blew my mind. And, the, and if, you, if you get into the lexicons, you'll see it too. But the word that is at the base of this word depart isn't apostasy. It's, it's another word, ephistemi. Say that out loud, will you? Ephistemi. And remember it. Say it again, ephistemi. Now, it, it doesn't mean to apostate. It doesn't mean to abandon God. It means to shrink back away from him. It doesn't mean to divorce him. It means to stand off from him. You know, to, to divorce him while still in the same house. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Staying in the house but shrinking back and shrinking away. I know couples that do that. They live in the same house, but they're divorced. Apostasia as a root would mean to reject, but this means to retreat, to withdraw it doesn't mean to push away. It means to slip away. You see, 
We haven't become a nation of rebels, but we have become cowards. Not willing to stand up for the faith we know. So we substitute religion for faith. I don't even like saying this. Good works for repentance and being tolerant for being right. Nice for being godly. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the American church. I'm talking about the loss of 55,000 congregations. I'm lost. I'm talking about the church is not working, Ron. The church is just not working. And here's the great tragedy of what I see. The great tragedy of all, the greatest of all is this. Those who are departing are doing it so gradually that even they don't fully realize what's happening. See, it's not rejection that's going on. We had rejection in the 60s. Most of you weren't around then. But I remember the rejection in the 60s. I mean, we wanted the drugs and we wanted the, uh, the Eastern religions and we wanted the free sex. and That was rejection. Back Way back in the 20s, now, I... Strange as it seems, I wasn't around then. But there was a defection. There was a defection. But this is a slow, inch by inch, slipping away and a shrinking back from the faith that we all know. And it's happening now, 2016. And it will characterize the next few years because it's a season. It's not a day. It's not an event. It's a season. It's where we have found ourselves in a season of extremity. So if, if, if where we are is a season of slipping back, then why are we there? That's question number two. What? We're slipping. The church is slipping. The church isn't standing for what it ought to be. Number two, why are we doing it? Look at this. Because there's a conscious and determined and well-planned deception and seduction that's causing this departure. Look at the text again. Can I, can I get the text back again? Now, the Spirit speaks expressly that in extreme season, an extreme time, some shall depart, slip away, not politically correct, back off, tone down their faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons who speak lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Or as the NIV says, these kinds of seductions and, and, and demonic doctrines will come from people who are willing to have their consciences seared. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard expressions like I'm going to quote to you right now. These are quotes of things that you've heard and I've heard every day. The Christian faith is not loving. It's harsh and intolerant and unkind and inhumane, and it puts too much demands on people. This is so unlike me, but here, here it goes. Homosexuality and same-sex marriage is an alternative lifestyle. It's not a vile passion. So we got to get rid of Romans chapter 1. Paul was hysterical there. That was for then, not for now. Abortion is a choice, not a child. 
until somebody takes it in her arms and christens it as her own, it doesn't have any reality and identity. Drugs aren't medicine. Uh, drugs aren't poison. They're medicine now. And someone said the other day, medical marijuana. Is it going to become healing heroin next? Or is it going to be comforting cocaine ultimately? Where is it going to stop? And an answer that I, I heard recently was, it's going to stop with legalizing euthanasia, which is mercy, not murder, for all of those who just don't seem to fit in well to the culture, the new culture. That's tough, isn't it? Seduce is the right word here, though. Seduce indicates that those who depart really aren't willingly departing. They're being seduced while they're trying really to have faith and have a relationship with God. But willing teachers show up whom demons use to entice unthinking Christians away from God by speaking lies. The text says speaking lies in hypocrisy. Their own conscience is already being seared or cauterized. Now, not all teachers, not all teachers are preachers. In fact, I did a study recently. It wasn't scientific. I'd like for it to have been a whole lot better. But I tried, I tried to find uh, how much influence, real influence, does the pulpit have on the U.S. culture anymore? You know, it used, it used to be a bully pulpit. The, the average of, of the research that I did came back about 1.5%. Maybe we have 1.5% of influence on the culture from the pulpit today. My goodness, how far have we fallen? You know who are the culture shapers today? producers of mainstream media. They're the culture shapers. Is that right? Am I right? TV personalities, actors who somehow always know everything about politics but have never studied it. University professors, elite newspaper editors, New York Times, Washington Post, Presidential candidates, billionaire hedge fund operators. The, these, these, these are the culture shapers. These, because of political correctness, are willing, some of them, not all of them, are willing liars who know better but put political correctness ahead of truth and integrity for personal gain. And it's happening right now. It's happening every day in 2016. And here's, here's, here's the difference. In the highest circles, it's happening. This campaign, this this political thing we've just come through. My God, thank God it's over at least. The Bible's hate speech. Church is bigots. Uh, this isn't Waco, Texas, you know, with the David Koresh. It's not Guyana with Jim Jones. Those were tempests in teacups compared to this. This is is a, a cultural bewitching that's going on in our country. It's corporate. It involves the money of Wall Street, the mores of Madison Avenue, 
And the movies of Hollywood, all of them, are together moving in the same vein. It's pervasive. It goes from the top all the way through. It's a cultural bewitching, a national delusion, a season of falling away. And you know, the church can't heal it. We're going to have to heal it as individuals. Um, you know why the church can't heal it? This thing called 501c3. It's like an iron claw in our brains. And we're afraid we'll lose our tax exemption if we speak up to the culture for the kingdom. <laughs> Lawyers will speak up. Doctors will speak up. Everybody else will speak up, but the church has got to be quiet. Because Lyndon Baines Johnson, in 1957, put the church underneath the 501c3 and kept it out of the political arena. So what is going on of falling away? Number two, why is it happening? Willing teachers for political correctness are causing it to happen. And number three, how is it working? How is it working? And what can we do? Now, I, I think I have, uh, what, how, I have about eight minutes left, seven or eight minutes left. How is this falling away happening? What can we do about it? Uh, God, God puts two things into us whenever we become born-again Christians. Number one, he puts a desire in us for the truth, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. That's what it's mentioned in this text. The great Pascal, Blaise Pascal, back in 1600s, he said, in every man there is a God-shaped vacuum and until that vacuum is filled, he said, the man's life remains empty. But if he can get that vacuum filled, then his life can enjoy fullness. Everybody said that, but I, I traced it back, and as far as I can tell, he was the first one to say it. Paul put it like this. He said, oh, that I might know him. When you come into Christ... You want to know him. You want to know him. Paul wanted to know Christ. Philippians 3.10. In these extreme times, therefore, if one doesn't have sound teaching, what he's going to do is depart from the faith because he's got built into him a desire for truth. And if he doesn't get sound teaching, he's going to take false teaching. If he doesn't get the truth, he'll take error. If he doesn't get the divine, he'll take the demonic. So the first thing that we need to do is make certain that all of our teaching and all of our preaching, not fads, not just what's hot, not just what's contemporary, but sound word, good, solid, biblical doctrine. I, I was in Texas preaching. Has anybody got a Bible? I don't have mine with me. Anybody got a Bible? Let me have your Bible just for a second here. Is that, anybody got a, a word in front of you? Yeah, there you are, honey. And this, this pastor was introducing me and and he he made a statement he opened his bible and he said every time i open this book god opens his mouth and he said it isn't the pages the, the words on the page that will save me 
It is the Spirit of God that's in this book that will speak to the Spirit of God inside me that will bring me life and redemption everlasting. That was one of the strong things that I learned early in my life in ministry. Solid word. Church, we've got to get back to the book and back to the Bible. But the third thing, the second thing is spirit presence. Paul said, our gospel came not to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. In other words, uh, the word by itself is not enough. We need it in spiritual anointing and presence. He said in 1 Corinthians, his same group, he said, my preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So the Holy Spirit presence is the environment for the Word. Mark even said in the 16th chapter about Jesus, look at this, he said, Jesus worked with the people confirming his word with signs following. That means that, that just the word by itself, wonderful as it is, is not enough. We need the Holy Spirit of God to take that word and build it into our lives. If one doesn't have genuine Holy Spirit presence, he'll depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits so you see we need sound word and we need spirit presence if the holy spirit's not present in our church in our lives in our families then demon spirits will be i've heard great exegetical texts and great preaching hermeneutically but if the Holy Ghost doesn't take that and drive it into our lives and hearts, what good is it? It won't make the difference. Now, let me bring this to a conclusion here. All word and no spirit leads to cessationism. Do we know what cessationism is? Um, it, it's just that spirit that says, there are no more miracles. God is not around. It's just philosophy, the philosophy of the word. All spirit and no word leads to sensationalism. That is just hyper-emotionalism. What we have to do is have both of them, solid word and strong spirit presence. And God's saying this to me, for the 21st century church. Ron, my word and my spirit, if these can be present powerfully in our gatherings in our house, our houses of God, then we'll stay on the target. And God will use what he is doing now in our nation to make us ready for a reformation that will be the greatest thing that's ever come. I want to conclude this with the passage from uh, Exodus where God said to Moses at Sinai when Israel was getting a refurbishing, it was getting a new start, which I believe America is getting. Now, I don't know how you feel about the the um, election. Um, I, don't, I don't know where you are in that. But whoever came in, whoever would have won that election, we have got to have a rebirth and a revival in this country. And I'm convinced of that. And I believe, I believe that God is giving us now a, an awakening time. He's, he's wanting to bring us into an awakening time. We need to realize the seriousness of where we are. But God said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, 
Sinai was for Israel what today is for us. He said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will become a special treasure to me out of the nations and for the nations of the earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nations. These are the words I want you to tell my people. I seem to have had that burned into my spirit. These are the words I want you to tell my people. What are those wings? Well, the first one is the word. And the second is the presence of Holy Spirit with the word. Now, sometimes we need a little more word and a little less spirit to get us on the, keep us on the track. Sometimes we may need a little more emphasis on the spirit and a little less on the word. But if we can use these eagle's wings, I believe God is going to use this great transition time as a time to bring us in America back to himself. I think this is the greatest opportunity in calamity that we've ever seen. These are, these are the extreme times. It is not politically correct to be a born-again, on-fire Christian today. Our culture calls us bigots and laughs at our Bible. But we can come through this with the Word and the Spirit. He'll navigate us through this, and on eagles' wings, he will make us that holy nation to himself. And it's going to take to bring America back to God. That's my word to you today. Extreme times call for extreme measures. This is where we are in the church today. God bless you.